There are seven letters to seven churches to start the book of Revelation. We are on letter number six today. So we're getting to the end of, of the letters, and there's, it's kind of making a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a progression, and, and we're going to read that next letter in just a minute. I want to do the first five on your notes. These are all review, not the same review we've been doing, changing it around a little bit, looking more at the lessons we're supposed to learn. So number one, deeds matter. Every letter has mentioned deeds. Deeds matter. But they must be done for God's glory alone. If we're doing righteous things for my own glory, then God's not pleased with them. If, if I'm trying to gain something, if, if I'm not even doing it for myself, but I'm just doing it because it's always been done, less, less pleased. We have to do things for God's glory. That should always be on the forefront. We don't want to forget our first love. Number two, when we suffer for serving Christ, our hope and strength comes in the knowledge that eternity in heaven and an unhindered relationship with Jesus is our reward. And I want to stop here. I want to I focus on this a little bit because I don't feel like I've done a great job making this point. And, and the reason I don't feel like I've done a great job is because it's hard even for me to relate to. You see, in, in their situation... They lived in constant danger. The Jews were against them. The, the Romans were against them. The Greeks were against them. Every, every group of people was against them because they all had a bunch of gods that the Gentiles did. And the Jews said, no, your gods aren't real gods. And so that put them in opposition. The Jews worshipped God, and they even had the right God, but they didn't worship God correctly. They disregarded Jesus as a Messiah, rejected him, and so they hated the Christians. So these, these Christians in these churches, they were, they were being attacked on all sides, and they had the potential of even losing their life, losing their income, losing their livelihood. Everything was against them, and so they lived constantly like that. Now, there are places in the world today that if you become a Christian, there's a really good chance you'll be kicked out of your family. And you, and you won't get to take your stuff with you. You'll be kicked out. You'll become homeless. There's a really good chance in some of those same parts of the world that when you become a Christian, you'll lose your job. You'll lose any opportunity for advancement. And there are also places where if you become a Christian, your very life is in danger. Where they may knock on your door one day and say, are you a Christian? And you answer the word yes, and they kill you. Those kind of places exist today, but they do not exist here. No one is doing any of these things in Kathlamet. The persecution we feel is, is getting a cold shoulder, a phone call not returned, not getting the promotion we wanted, maybe not being welcome at certain places at certain times. The persecution we feel is, is minor compared to the rest of the world, a lot of places in the world, and compared to their world. So if you lived in constant fear that your life could be taken or your children's lives could be taken or constant fear that your children might be taken away from you simply because of your faith, you live in fear that you might lose your job, you might lose your friends, you might lose your family, that someone who you trust might turn you in, that would be a different situation. Think of, think of some parts of China today 
some parts of India, Turkey, some of the places where it's actually against the law to be a Christian. And you live in that world where you're constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly wondering if, as I share my faith today, is this a trap? Am I going to be arrested and or persecuted and or killed because of what I'm doing today in obedience to Christ? You live in that world where that's your your daily constant interaction with society and you're depending on God daily to protect you or to use you as you are martyred or as you are persecuted. That's a whole different story. And so we read this. And we say, when we suffer for Christ, our hope and strength comes in the knowledge of eternity in heaven and an unhindered relationship with Jesus. And we say, well, my relationship with Jesus isn't that hindered now. I have six Bibles, three of them on my phone. I have a Christian radio station. I have Christian music on my playlist. I have Christian friends that I interact with. I go to church every Sunday. Sometimes I come on Wednesday. I have, I have all this Christian stuff. My relationship with God isn't very hindered right now, so I guess that's not too much incentive. And eternity in heaven, yeah, there's, it's going to be good. There's joy and peace and all these things. But I have a lot of joy now, and I'm, I have a lot of peace, and not a lot of things going on. And, and we, we don't leap like they leapt. We're pretty comfortable and pretty happy, and God has blessed us tremendously in that but the difference between heaven and Christian America is not as different as heaven and first century Roman Empire. So when the people who lived in under constant threat, daily persecution, um, all these things I've described, when they heard about a place where they had a free relationship with Jesus, where they actually got to talk to Jesus and walk with Jesus and meet Jesus, where there was no pain and there was no suffering and there was no persecution and Jesus was on the throne and these other gods did not exist. That was a big deal to them. And we need to look from their perspective to gain that. So when Jesus said to them, when you suffer for me, your hope, the thing that will keep you going the thing that will give you strength, the thing that will keep you from giving up, is the knowledge and certainty that one day you'll be in eternity with me and all these things will be gone. And you will have an unhindered relationship with me. That's what the hope is. It's, it's a one day it's coming. Someday I'll be there. It's going to happen. I just have to endure. I just have to keep going. I just have to be true. And so even, they, they felt it more than us, but it's no less true for us. Compromise is also easier for us. It goes more unseen, it's more accepted, and we can get away with it. God still calls us to not compromise. And he calls us to endure and to keep going and not give up. And when something hard happens, to keep moving forward and trust him. And I'm, I'm guessing there's harder things coming for our culture and our nation. And he says, when this stuff comes, when you experience it, your hope and your strength is still in me. And it's still in the promise that one day you're going to exit this world and it is going to be so different that you'll never want to come back. That's how different it's going to be one day. 
And so that's that's where we find our strength. And that's what he said to them. He says it over and over and over again in, in a variety of ways. Number three, false teachers are the enemy of God and a cancer within the church. You know, you have stages of cancer, and if you catch it really early, you can usually do something about it and, and stop it, or cure it, or get it gone. The later, it, the longer it's been without being detected, the harder it is to get rid of, and the more suffering it's going to take to treat it. Well, false teaching is like that in the church. If we nip it right at the beginning, if we recognize it and stop it, it does the least amount of damage and the least amount of harm and the least number of people buy into it. But if we let it go, and we let it go, and we, we, we want to be nice, so we don't mention it, and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and, and we're not sure ourselves because we haven't studied our own Bibles, eventually it can take over a church, and it can ruin a church. So false teachers are the enemy of God and a cancer within the church. We must not only identify them, but reject their teachings. We literally have to teach ourselves and, and tell others who might be susceptible that this is wrong and this is why and we're not going to do it. We have to reject the teaching. We, we can't just be giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and, and hoping their heart's in the right place because they're nice people. Number four, true believers make up the true church. There, there can be all kinds of people in the church. There can be people who are literally faking it for their own good. Uh, there's, there's business opportunities in the church because church people deal with other church people. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to put on a good show so I can do better in business. There's people that fake it like that. There's people that, that fake it like, hey, God spoke to me and this is what he said. And this is what you should do and you need to follow me. And they're looking for a following, and they're looking for power, and they're looking for influence. And, 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 and they're not true believers. And there's people that have believed the lie that they still need to hear the truth. But true believers, those who endure, who persevere, who stick with it, even when it's hard, who follow Scripture first and foremost, the true believers make up the true church. And faithfulness in these true believers will be recognized and rewarded by Christ. Jesus is not watching from the sidelines and ignoring what's happening. He says, I know it's hard. I know there's difficulties. I know you're facing opposition. But keep going because I'm watching and I'm keeping track. And true believers will be rewarded for their service. True believers will be rewarded for their dedication. It's not just that you get to go to heaven. And when you get there, there's rewards. Build up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Number five, ungodly living, political persecution, and even friendly fire from religious groups will not stop God from his work or his church from their mission. Christ builds his church. He said the gates of hell will not stand against it. So political pressure, uh, sin all around us, even religious groups attacking one another or attacking us, this is not going to stop God from doing his work. So we need to look for and find our place in God's work so that we can be a church that if we received a letter that said to the, to the angel of the church in Kathlam at right, we'd get a good letter. These are all things we're supposed to learn. All the churches are supposed to learn all these things, each one of these found in one or two, or maybe just one, and, and we build along the way. 
Well, now we come to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and it is going to continue to build, and today we're going to hear some new things. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to take your notes. I want you to set them on the pew next to you or stick them in your Bible somewhere where you can't see them because we're not going to refer to them for a few minutes. This passage has so much in it that I want you to take your finger and I want you to put it on there and I want you to follow along with me. And I'm just going to comment. I'm going to become a commenter. I'm going to give you my commentary. Does that sound important? I'm just going to talk as we read. And then we'll come back to the notes and we'll fill in a few blanks. But the notes would be four pages long if, if we included everything. So just follow along with me. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And that's really going, write this letter, give it to the pastor. Okay, give it to the pastor, the messenger of the church. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Now this is interesting because this is the first introduction to a letter that doesn't mirror the original vision that John had. When Jesus spoke to him and he turned around and he saw Jesus, all the other introductions have mirrored that where we automatically know it's Jesus because we already saw him in the vision. So now we have the sixth of the seven letters, and now we don't need that introduction. We are already, like we start the letter, we already know it's from Jesus. We're already there. So now we're going to get more information about Jesus. So these are the words to him of him who is holy and true. Those, those go together, but let's deal with them separately. Holy, holy means what? What is this an indicator of? Well, further on in Revelation, we're going to read about the throne room of God, and there's going to be angels, and they're going to be saying certain things over and over and over again. One of the things they're going to say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then they're going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then they're going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it says that never stops. They will be repeating the entire time, at least, that John is there watching. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we are supposed to recognize that God is holy. Earlier in the scripture, it says, it says you should be holy because I am holy. Holiness belongs to God. Therefore, we read this as these are the words of him who is holy. We already know it's Jesus. The emphasis now is it's, it's Jesus, not John writing you. It's Jesus, and me, Jesus, am God. Kind of laying out the authority here. I am God. And he says, I'm true. I, I'm the holder of truth. I'm the establisher of truth. I'm the judge of truth. When I speak, it is truth. Whatever I say goes, whatever I say is. I am, I am God and truth all wrapped into one. There is no falsehood, there is no lie, there is no deception. I am God and I'm speaking to you as God. And it says, who holds the key of David? Well, David was the king by which all other kings are compared. He, he was a king after the heart of David. He, he walked away from David's ways. Every king that Israel ever had was compared to David, and they were either like David or not like David. And they were like David in the good ways. David did a lot of dumb stuff, but that's not part of the measurement. David was the, the man after God's own heart. And they wanted a king like David. And then there was a prophecy that when the Messiah came, he would be in the line of David... 
and he would be the fulfillment of the promise that David would always have an heir on the throne. And so when Jesus says, I hold the key of David, he says, I am the king that was promised. I am the heir of David that will sit on the throne. So I am God, I hold all truth, and I'm the king. So what we can see here is that that Jesus has divine authority, he has legal authority, he has moral authority, and he has royal authority. So in this statement here, Jesus is claiming it all. He says, I, I know all, see all, speak for all. What I say is true. I am God. I'm the king. There is, there is no one above me in any category, in any location. And he says, in that position, and he's still talking in the third person, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. He says, when I do something, it's done. When I open a door... No one can close it. Satan can't close it. You can't close it. Your neighbor can't close it. The, the false gods can't close it. When I open a door, it's open, and it's open until I want it closed. And when I close the door, it's closed, and no one can open it. He's saying, I'm in charge. Because I'm in charge. Nothing anyone can do about it because I'm, I'm God, I'm king, and everything in between. Verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. He says, I know your deeds, really implying you have good deeds, much like many of the other churches, and I listed them in the other places. I know your deeds. And then interestingly, in the NIV, it says see, S-E-E, see? It says, I know your deeds, see? Like, how's, what's the proof that I know your deeds? I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He says, I've given you an opportunity. I've, I've given you a blessing. I've done something for you that I don't do for everybody, and it's one of those doors that no one can shut. I know your deeds. I know what kind of people you are. I know what kind of things you do. I know what kind of church you are. And, and, I, and, and to prove it, just look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. I've opened, I, I've opened a door that no one can close. No one can shut. It says, I know you have little strength. Now, it's interesting because you could say, oh, it's a weak church. That would be an incorrect interpretation because every description of them is a strong church. So he wouldn't say, I know you're weak, and then describe them as strong. So what, what does it mean? What are they saying? He says, I know you have little strength. He said, I know, I know you're small. I know there's not that many of you. Gideon's army was strong, but they were few. When you look at a 300-man army and compare it to a, a million-man army, you're going to say that the million-man army is strong and the 300-man army is weak, even though they're filled with strong warriors. That's what this is. He says, I, I know you have little strength. I know you're small. And, and we know that they were a small church. And so he says, I know you're small, yet, in spite of being small, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So... In, in the world I described, a small group of people is vulnerable. They're susceptible to outside pressures. They would be fairly easy to squash. And he says, I know you're small, and you, so you have all that against you, but you've kept my word. You're, you're following the scriptures. You've kept my word, and you don't deny my name. You don't back down. You, you don't mislead. You don't compromise. Verse 9. I will make those 
who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be the Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved, that I have loved you. Well, that's not very confusing, is it? What in the world are we talking about? Well, let's start with, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Back in the day, their day, when two cities or two nations or two kings fought one another, they believed that the greater God would bring victory to the king who served him. And so when we fight, if my city beats your city, my army beats your army, then your king comes and bows before my king and admits that we are stronger and that our God is better. And so what we see here is a, a, a symbolism of victory. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The thing they deny, they're going to have to admit. Reminds me of the phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And notice it didn't say every believing knee will bow and every believing tongue will confess. The atheist will bow and confess. The agnostic will bow and confess. The Satanist will bow and confess. Everyone will bow. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And he's saying, you know, when, when it's over and, and when uh, there's a winner and a loser, I'm going to include you in the, in the display of victory and, and they're going to have to admit that you were right. Well, who is it? The synagogue of Satan who claimed to be Jews, though they are not. Well, the Jewish people knew the correct God. They, they worshipped Yahweh. They had built a false religion around the correct God. And Jesus came and he said, this is all wrong. Here's what needs to happen. I'm going to die for your sins. The Messiah will not be the king right now, will not be the priest right now. I'm going to die as a sacrifice so you can be forgiven. And then he sent out his disciples and he sent out Paul and others. And they preached the good news. But there's a bunch of Jews who said, no, that's not true. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teacher of the law, a bunch of people that followed them, they would have been going like, no, that ain't true. That Jesus guy, yeah, we don't know what he did. We can't explain it, but we don't like him. And he's false. He's wrong. And they'd say, we worshiped God before you did. We've always worshiped God. You have to trust us. Jesus is not God. He's just some guy that we don't need anymore, so back off. And these people would say, no, he is God. And so the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews that are not, they're the ones that are saying, no, he's not the real God. A true Jewish person would recognize the Messiah. That's what's being implied here. And so they're not true Jews. So the people who claim they know God but don't, who claim you don't know God even though you do, these are my enemy. They're serving Satan. They're a synagogue of Satan. When it's all over, they will bow down to me, and you're going to be there with me, and you're going to hear them say, I'm Lord. You're going to hear them admit they were wrong and that you were right. That's part of the promise there. This is something he's saying to you. Because of who you are and your faithfulness, this is what I'm going to do. Verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you away from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Well, in Revelation, this is the first time we've heard of this. What is this hour of trial that's going to come? What is this time of trial, this, this measured time of trial that's going to come on the whole earth 
to test the inhabitants, and how are you going to keep me from it? Well, I don't think when they read this, they had the answers. Because the tribulation period had not been written about yet. It's coming very soon. And I think that's the point here is keep reading. There's something coming. There's an hour of trial coming. And the whole world's going to be tested. And you guys, you guys won't have to be here. Why? Because you're true believers. And so every other true believer who's already read a letter to their church will go, Wow, true believers won't be here. That's great. What are we talking about? And so they'll, they'll keep reading, and, and we're going to keep reading. I'm not going to talk about it now either. But this is a, a, a scripture that's talking about the coming tribulation. And how will you not be here? Talking about the coming rapture. Now, they had heard about the rapture because Paul had taught about it, but they didn't necessarily, necessarily know when it would take place, and they didn't know about the tribulation yet. That's still coming. Now, verse 11, it says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Well, there's three things in that verse that are interesting. I'm coming soon. Soon to me means sometime between in the next five minutes and the next two days. Right? I'm not that good at patience. I kind of want everything now. I often have to pray to God. I know that you may want to take some time, so go ahead. Even though I've pretty much demanded today right? To all of these people, when he said, I'm coming soon, they thought, at least in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime, that would be the outside possibility of soon. And that's what they heard, and that's what they believed. And that's what God wanted them to believe. And that's really interesting, because he says, I am coming soon. Now, in the first person, I, what is soon to Jesus? Well, he says in another passage, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, which really means time is pretty irrelevant in, in God's way of thinking, but you can compare it to, you know, your time is nothing to my time. And so if we just take that ratio, then in God's time, that thousand years, we're only, we're not even to the end of the week yet of creation. The thousand years per day. And so what he's saying is, I'm coming soon, and he wants us to think soon. We should all have in our mind that Jesus could come today. He could come before the end of the sermon. He could relieve you all from the rest of the sermon. But he didn't. We should all be thinking it's coming because it's going to affect how we live. And he wanted them to have the reference that it could happen any time because it would affect how they live. He also tells us to plan ahead, and he also tells us to be looking to the future. We could have another thousand years on this planet. Most of us would say, I don't see how, but they also said that a thousand years ago, right? So he says, I'm coming soon. I want you to have the mindset that I'm coming soon. And in the process, hold on to what you have. Don't stop doing what you're doing so that no one will take your crown. Well, a crown is a reward, you get crowns in heaven. It's a symbol of reward. You know, it says, I'm, I'm preparing treasures in heaven for you. I, I have rewards for you. And what he's saying is, as, as you endure, as you persevere, as you obey, as you are strong, as you do not deny my, my name, as you stick to Scripture, all these things are gaining your reward. And if you stop them, the gain will also stop. You're going to lose reward. 
So he's saying, you know, in the future, there's a reward for you. Keep up with what you're doing. You're, you're earning that reward. You're earning those future things that will give you the strength you need to keep going. Then verse 12, it says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's one thing you know about a pillar? It's permanent. But there's a pillar in the temple. It's there for a reason. It's there to hold the roof up or to give it structure. And he said, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. I will make you a permanent resident of heaven, of the temple, of where God is. To those who are victorious, to those who truly believe, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will they leave it. You don't have to worry about it. You're not, you're not going to accidentally leave. You're not going to get kicked out. Never will you leave it. Your salvation is secure. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the holy city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Well, what's that all about? Well, think of it like this. He's saying, you're going to be a pillar in the temple. You're safe and secure. You're never going to leave my presence. And, and, and just in case anyone wants to know, I'm going to write God's name and address on you. Like, you belong to, to this God, and here's where you find him. Just in case. It, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's a statement. It's, it's to show ownership. Okay? And then we'll have the New Jerusalem. This is probably the first time the name's given to the New Jerusalem. And later on, a long time from now, we're going to talk about the New Jerusalem. And that is, that is the city of heaven that comes down to the new earth. And it's where God rules from, the New Jerusalem. It says, which is coming down out of heaven for my God. Again, something they probably haven't heard of. So this letter, this letter is giving them new information and giving everyone new things to consider. And it says, I will also write on them my new name. What's, what's the new name? Don't know. But he's going to write, he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to mark you as mine in every way there is to mark you. You belong to me and there will be no question about it. That's, that's what all that is saying. Verse 13, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he's saying, pay attention, this is important. So that's, that's that letter. So as, as we read the letters, we have overlap and we have repetition. We have the same issues. We have different things being said. All of a sudden, we get to Philadelphia and we get this almost completely new letter and, and new information for the first time really looking forward to specific events that will have to be explained. And we have all of this. Let's go to our notes. Let's talk about a few more things. Number one, Philadelphia was a city much like all the others. The pagan gods were worshipped. There were Jews that did not believe Jesus was a Messiah. And persecution was looming. So they, they, they had all the same circumstances as the other churches. Maybe less than some, more than others. Number two, little strength refers to their numbers. We talked about that. The Philadelphia church was a small church was very strong in their faith and practice. All of a sudden, I feel like standing up a little straighter, spreading my shoulders out a little bit, looking important, because all of a sudden I read about a small church that was strong in their faith and practice, and I go, hey, we're a small church. And I ask the question, are we strong in our faith and practice? And the answer is, I sure hope so. I want to be, 
That's our goal. That's what we're working towards. We don't want to be a church that gets a letter saying, I know your deeds, and they stink. Right? We want to be a letter that says, hey, I know you're small, and I know you're standing firm, and I got a lot of reward coming for you. That's what we want. They were a small church, but they were strong in number. Number three, Jesus introduced himself in a new and unique way. We talked about this, but I want to give you the, the answers to write down. When he referred to Jesus as holy, he was identifying him as God. When he referred to him as true, you can say he was judging at the highest standard. So the greatest judge at the highest standard looked at them and said, I know your deeds, let me prove it by blessing you in, with an open door. And then the key, him who holds the key of David, that's king, he's king. Again, it's divine, it's royal, it's legal, and it's moral authority. He has authority in all areas, the highest authority. Positives, you've kept my word, you have not denied my name, you have kept my command to endure patiently. And as a result, he gave them opportunities to serve. What are the negatives? Absolutely nothing. Were they a perfect church? Absolutely not. A perfect church does not exist because they're filled with imperfect people. If they were the perfect church, God would have said you're the perfect church, and they would still exist because a perfect church does not go away. So they, they were not a perfect church. They had their issues. They had their flaws, just like every other church. But God chose not to mention any of the negatives. That's interesting. He says, what's commendable about you is so commendable that I don't, I'm not even going to mention the negatives. Number five, the promise. You will experience spiritual victory over my enemies. It, it's God that has the victory, and he says, I'm going to include you in the process. When they bow their knee and confess me as Lord and, and have to admit that you were right and they were wrong, I'm going to let you be there. I'm going to let you see that. B, you will not be present in the tribulation. They didn't call it the tribulation. We don't have that name. It was an hour of trial. It's going to test the whole world. We know it as a tribulation. And he says, you're not going to be there for the big test. You get to skip the final, if you will. That's a terrible way to say it, but that, I did it. C, I'm coming soon. That's an encouragement. I'm coming soon. And then D, your salvation is secure. Your citizenship is eternal. Your relationship with God is personally sealed. I wrote my name and my address and my dad's name on there too. Like, you belong to me. There's nothing anyone can do. You're a pillar in my temple. And then the instruction, hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. Don't let anybody take your reward away. Two important things we must not miss. Number one, even though we're a small church, even though they are a small church, the opportunities that God gives them cannot be taken away. Cannot be taken away. Small churches are given opportunities that cannot be taken away. That's good news. That's encouraging. Number two, keeping God's word and not denying Jesus' name is the key to the success of a small church. You want to know how to be successful as a church? Stay true to God's word and never deny Christ. What does that look like? Well, A, keep the scriptures the focal point of all teaching and practice and make Jesus known among the community and protect his reputation. Protect his reputation. That's the influence we prayed for earlier. 
protect his reputation. What's the encouragement for us? He finally got to us. One, we are a small church. And that does not hinder God from using us. That does not hinder God in any way. God has all the power. He has all the authority. He has all the money. He has all the intelligence. He has everything there is that we may need at his fingertips. And, and, and us being a small church does not hinder him. Number two, if we're faithful to God's word and Jesus' name, God will open doors for us. Now, it's, it's not a promise, but I'm, I'm pulling that out of there as a principle. He opened the door for them because they were faithful. And so I'm, I'm hoping and believing that as we are faithful, he will also open a door for us. And if God opens the door, no one can close it until he's ready for it to be closed. So when God opens the door, what's our job? Our job is to walk through that door. Being a small church does not keep the door closed. Being a small church may be the very thing God wants to do. And he says, when I open a door, it's open. So number three, when God opens the door, he keeps it open as long as he chooses. It's not dependent on our numbers, our finances, or our social positioning, or anything else you could think of. When he opens the door, it's open as long as he wants it. Number four, Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but because they kept the main thing the main thing, Jesus mentioned none of their shortcomings in his letter. We are not a perfect church. We strive to keep the main thing the main thing, and hopefully God's not preparing a letter to tell us everything we're doing wrong. The point is, keep the main thing the main thing. Scripture, Jesus. Number five, the key to Heritage Bible Church being a successful church in God's eyes is to be, a, to be faithful to Christ, faithful to God's word, and faithful to walk through the open doors, the doors that God opened. That's what we can learn from this. I'll give you two seconds to put your papers away, because I know you want to. <laughs> and we're going to pray. Father God... Thank you for this letter. How encouraging is it that, that even one of the small churches got a letter? And you commended them for being faithful. And you told them because of their faithfulness, you're opening a door. And it's, it's a blessing to have the door open. Maybe it was an opportunity. Maybe it was a special blessing. We don't know what it was. But you opened a door, and the opposition could not close it. Well, Father, we are a small church, and we, we strive to be faithful. And we ask that you open doors of opportunity that we can walk through. And when you open that door, I pray that you, with the Holy Spirit, just encourage us. And, and, and let us walk by faith. And let us move forward to do what you have us to do. And if that door is a strange door, but it's your door, help us to walk through. Father, we want to serve you. We want to love you. We want these things to be true of us. We want to avoid the things that were mentioned in some of these other churches. Help us to be a church that honors you and serves you. Help us to walk forward through the open doors that you give us. And may we never compromise your scriptures. And may we never do anything to make your name look bad. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.